Hello and welcome to In Person with Paul on Crime Time FM. I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. And here's where I interview authors about their latest novels. My guest today is John Brownlow, and his debut novel, 17, Last Man Standing, is about as in-your-face and high-octane as it gets. It's an exhilarating read. Brownlow is a very successful scriptwriter. He wrote the film Sylvia, for instance, starring Gwyneth Paltrow as Sylvia Plath and Daniel Craig as Ted Hughes. Also the TV series about Ian Fleming, about his war years and about the formation of James Bond. He also produced an elegant adaptation of Jesse Burton's The Miniaturist, and that only scratches the surface of a 20-year-plus film and TV career. We're going to chat about all that as well as Seventeen. It's fascinating how scriptwriting gave Brownlow certain tools for the novel, but there's an awful lot to learn too. So let's start with some of that absolutely fascinating film and TV background. Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM, John. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Uh, it's my pleasure. Well, obviously, we're going to be talking about your new novel, your debut novel, in fact, 17. But let's go back a bit. Um, you studied maths before English. I think you thought about pursuing a career in photography before getting into television. Give us a little bit of background, please. Yeah, OK. Um, I was uh, I was a, a really fully paid up card carrying nerd as a child, <laughs> and um, I was quite good at maths. So the school that I was at had took no notice of what you wanted to do and just sent you to ah. whatever they thought you should do. So I went off to do a year of maths. And uh, at the end of a year, I realized I really didn't want to know what X equaled anymore. And all of the more interesting people I knew were doing English. And, mm. you know, I had basically never read a book. Um, but I somehow through, I don't know, force of personality or something like that, persuaded them to let me change from maths to English. And um, so I did three years of English and read all the books that I should have read when I was younger. I, I really wanted to do something practical. And I had, I, I got a job teaching on a summer school where I met a photographer, a very good photographer who was very mm -hmm. inspirational for me. And I ended up going to the States and working with his, as his assistant for a while and then came back to England, um, you know, with no money and lots of credit card debt, um, you know, at age 20 something tried to make it as a photographer, but I did really, you know, I, I worked in like, you know, doing music you know, like rock and roll photography and stuff like that, but there's just no money in it. And um, mm. so I ended up going into TV production. I started as a researcher and an investigative journalist for documentaries for Channel 4. And I ended up as a producing and directing about, I don't know, 15 films and mm. ended up then ended up as a head of development at a TV company. And then um, decided that I, uh, I wanted to direct films. So I wrote a script that I thought I would, someone would let me direct. And nobody wanted to let me direct it, but they went, oh, this is quite good. Can you write this instead? So they, you know, my first job writing scripts paid as much in three months as I'd earned in the previous year right. in documents. So I rode that horse very firmly in the direction that it was going and um, ended up doing that for 20 years, basically. And then <clears throat> during that time, I'd thought about writing novels because one of the differences between the world of tv and film and novels is that in tv and film you mostly the you make a living by pitching an idea or someone sending you something so, and you pitching for the right to write it so mm. you're um you're always begging basically for someone to give you the money to write something 
And whereas, um, at least for your debut novel, you're, you write the novel first. And so you don't have to take notes from anyone. You can just, you have to, you write what you want as opposed to yeah, writing very different else experience, wants, which is really so super different. And, um, I had, you know, having done it for 20 years and pitched, you know, hundreds of ideas, I had this massive backlog of ideas that I had not been able to tell because no one would buy them. And I felt that when the pandemic came, actually, I had three months of downtime, which I never had in 20 years. And I thought, yeah, well, right. time, do it now or don't. And so I picked, <clears throat> I mean, I'll be totally honest with you. Um, I picked the most commercial idea that I had. <laughs> It was, a, you know, it was, a, I have a family to support and I have a mortgage to pay. And um, so, you know, there's no use writing a novel about, you know, that nobody's going to read. No. So I, I, I picked something that I really wanted to, I'd always had this guy's voice in my head. I knew it was good and I'd pitched it a few times as a, as a film and people hadn't bought it, um, but I knew it was good. And I also knew that if I pulled it off as a novel, which then I would probably get, you know, it would probably get made as a film. Right. Yeah. It was that kind of novel. But uh, the catch was, um, they, you know, I have very good contacts in the film and TV business. I have agents in London and yes, LA of course. And the rest yeah. Of it, right. But I had, I knew no one in books and I knew nothing about books. Mm. Um, I mean, apart from, you know, having read them. And so having finished it and looking at the sort of your thick pile of paper, oh, I wonder what you do with it now. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so I had, I had luckily, because I've adapted books for people, I had a couple of friends who are novelists and I rang, literally rang them up and said, what do you do? What do I do? Yeah. And, uh, and so they very kindly told me what I should do. And, uh, you know, and it was funny because it was, you know, being so, you know, pretty much a veteran in film and TV. It was mm. like going back to being a beginner again. Yeah. And, you know, sending off query letters to agents and, um, you know, waiting nervously by the phone and all of that stuff. It was quite exciting. There's a saying that the happiest man in the world is in, a man in pursuit of a dollar with a reasonable chance of overtaking it. And uh, <laughs> that's what I felt like. It was it was quite invigorating. And um, but I had no idea whether it was any good or not at all. And it was in, I went to uh, the Harrogate Book Festival in July. Yes, and met right. a lot of other authors. And I mean, who are sort of wildly different characters, um, as you can imagine, but they all had the same story. It was very interesting that there was one thing that united everybody, which is that mm -hmm. at some point they had just decided on the basis of nothing at all that they were going to write a novel yeah. and then ended up staring at it and going, well, is it any good? I don't know. And sending it off to an agent and, you know, eventually getting it published. And it was really interesting that despite all the differences between people, everyone had that kind of strange experience of being surprised that people liked it and that it got published and so on the sort of humility of it was really interesting say so it is yeah and you get that even with the biggest writers you know you still get that point where they finish this work and they think right is it good enough does it match the last one will people yeah. still like this one it's incredible that never goes away yes yeah, so it, it's uh it, there's a kind of um existential leap in writing something like a novel because a novel is a huge amount of work it's a much yeah. bigger amount of work as it turns out than really the screenplay. Uh, the screenplay. <laughs> I could knock out a screenplay in four weeks, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, writing a novel is physical labor. It really is like mining, yeah, or something like that. <clears throat> Mentally, anyway. Yeah, uh, so well, we'll certainly get into that for sure. I mean, it's interesting. You kind of make it sound almost like it's serendipity, but I suppose unless we're, for instance, if you want to be a fireman and you get to be a fireman and you have a whole career being a fireman, I suppose you've achieved what you want in life. 
But most of us, I mean, I fell into this, being a critic, doing the podcast, all these sort of things have sort of fallen my way. And it, it feels like there's a little bit about that in your story. You know, you've, you've gone down one road and it's not quite worked out and you've taken a chance and gone another way. Yeah, I'm a big believer in making in taking chances. I think mm. that that's the thing, right? That <clears throat> excuse me, all the most interesting things in my in my life have come from doing taking risks, basically. Mm. And I could bore you with my politics for <laughs> for another hour, but you know, being in a position, being privileged in a position where you're privileged enough to take a risk, whether that's because you're young and stupid and don't have any kind of sense of risk mm. or because you've made enough money that you can take three months to write a novel or because you're, you know, very often because your parents are rich enough that, you know, they don't, you don't have any student loans or anything like that. Yeah. Right. Um, risks, risk, being able to take risks is a real privilege. And I think that, um, there are times in your life where you do have a moment of opportunity to sort of take an existential leap and do something weird. Um, and, it's really important to take them. I, you know, the pandemic I thought was very interesting. I have a lot of friends who did something new during the mm. pandemic, who changed, you know, started a podcast or um, wrote a book or, you know, took a, uh, you know, in one case became a, you know, wilderness kayaking instructor in Greenland. Right. You know, <laughs> for people, you know, it was an opportunity, but it was a forced opportunity. But I, anyway, all I was saying is that, yeah, I, I'm a big believer in, in taking risks. No, I think that's right. There's another factor there, though, is that there's always a driver there, you, you know, in you. You obviously want to succeed. You obviously want to do things. You obviously have that will to do it. So it's always there. It has to be there. That's, I suppose, the difference between the people who do complete the novel and the ones who think it sounds like a good idea. And, of course, it never gets there. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the two parts to it. One is that I love to make things. I've always liked to make things whether it's physically make things or making music or writing, you right. know, writing, writing something or, or, you know, repairing electronics, you know, I'm a, I'm a fully paid up nerd, like I said. <laughs> um, but also, uh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Uh, I tell people that if you, the, in terms of writing, the two most important words you ever write are V and end. Mm, right. Uh, um, you know, and so having some kind of, um, method that ensures you get to the end is one of the most crucial things right about, right especially writing professionally you know yeah if someone's paying you a bunch of money to write something you better write it you know you mm, can't go back and go i couldn't do it so i didn't get there you know um so people have different methods for doing that but i think it's really important to have something that guarantees you're going to complete it yeah because for sure when you finish something it's always terrible um but it's an improvable draft um, well, that's a point, isn't it? Because you believe in that anyway, don't you? I mean, draft it, and the first draft is never going to be that good. But you it's redraft. It's never as good as you redraft. Right. It's, never, it's never as good as you hope, and it's never mm. as bad as you feared. Yeah, good point. <laughs> so, you know, it's, a, it's, 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 it's an improvable draft. I think one of the hardest things is preserving the vision that you had at the beginning of it. You know, usually when you have an idea and you want to write it or, or, or you're a paint something or you want to write a song or whatever, mm. <clears throat> there's some germ of it that makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Because right. It's really good. There's something there. That, oh, that's a really good idea. I really want to do that. And it's really easy to get off the track with it and lose that because you just lose sight of it or you're not concentrating about it. Right. You know, very often as a, someone who adapts novels for the mm. screen, You'll read the novel 
and it's got a fantastic setup at the beginning the first third of it it's really interesting oh my god yeah how's this going to work out and you sense that there's for example there are two characters who are at odds and mm-hmm. there's an obligatory scene in it as the as the reader you're like well i have to see these two guys like sort this out or these woman mm-hmm. and this woman or these two women whatever there's an obligatory scene which is the kind of culmination of all of that and you'd be amazed how many times that scene just never happens or it happens off screen or it's just dealt with in the most kind of uh you know uninteresting way right and yeah, you yeah. can tell you know you can tell that 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 idea of that conflict was what got the person writing and what interested them about the story and then they got lost in the plot or mm. you know got tired or something like that so having something trying to retain that kind of excitement and figure out what it is that you're d- driving at is really important and that's a very helpful thing for getting to the end mm-hmm. so you don't just sort of lose interest or how is that then with a screenplay for instance somebody else's work i'm talking about now when you come yeah. to write the the screenplay you've got to get an essence of the work which i think possibly is more important than an, than any kind of carbon copy of what you've got in a book you can't do that anyway but when you're looking at that essence, is it the same sort of thing? You know, you get the hairs on the back of your neck. You start to think, yeah, I, I can see the essence of this. And that's what I'm yes. going to go. I mean, I think, you know, everybody, when you, when a producer wants a book, finds a book, they see a book that's mm. a bestseller or something like that, they want to adapt it. So they'll send it out to, you know, anything between five and 20 different writers to get a take on it. Right. And every writer comes back saying, oh, I think you should do this with it. I think you should do this with it. And of course, we all have our own opinions about it. My method is. I, I basically deconstruct the book. I will take the right. book, analyze it, literally like chat plot point by plot point by plot point, all the characters or all of that stuff. And then I will look at it and go, well, this is, you know, once in a while you'll find a book that totally sticks the landing. You just go, oh, great, I'll just adapt right. this. But most of the time you feel like there's something to – movies have their own rules. Um, you know, there's a sort of contract with the audience with a movie – Based on the post, you know, most movies are yes, genre right. movies. They're a thriller or they're a horror or the romantic comedy or, or, you know, nobody makes dramas anymore. But, and when you see, you know, imagine that picture of the, the thriller, um, uh, poster. It's, it, 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 it promises the audience that there's yes, going right. to be a certain things happening. There'll be existential, um, threat right. to the protagonist mm. who's going to be in fear of his or her life. And there's going to be some kind of final climactic thing and the and and the protagonist is going to win those are sort of the de rigueur you, mm. you can't can't make a thriller without those if you do people come back and say what the hell was that if you don't if you don't hit all those points and often a book doesn't do that so then you have to and quite rightly the book doesn't have to do yes that. i see yeah no that makes a lot of sense when it comes to um watching films and things now can you actually watch them and just relax and watch almost never <laughs> almost never right once in a while once in a while when you see a film that's just like so sort of drastically different and just like comes at you out of absolutely left field and you have no idea where it's going right like i watched uh i watched uh <laughs> the two things that i watched recently that i thought that i completely just like let my critical brain off you know right wander in the park while i watched it was i watched um it's ridiculously different things. I watched uh, everything, everywhere, all all at once, whatever it was called. Right. The, uh, that crazy multiverse movie, which was so completely bananas, um, that and utterly entertaining. That I, you know, I, I think I stopped kind of my brain working after right, about yeah. five minutes. It was fantastic. I was completely wrapped up. It was very very clever, but just did not obey any rules at all. Um, <clears throat> and then I. The other one I watched was Rowan Atkinson in Man vs. Bee, which uh. my family made me watch and was really 
completely excellent from beginning to end. So that's my taste for you. It's low taste. That's why I have. <laughs> well, obviously, we're here to talk about your book, but one question before we do, just to set the scene a little bit for some people who may be not familiar with your work, but I'm familiar certainly with The Miniaturist when you, you did the screenplay for Jesse Burton's work, didn't you? Yeah. And you also did the original screenplays for Sylvia and um, Fleming, of course. Yes, that's right. Yeah, tell us a little bit about some of the projects you've worked on. Well, I probably, you mean the world of, you know, the world of, of screenwriting is that you write 10 scripts or more, 20 scripts mm. for every one that gets made. So right. really the ones that get made are quite serendipitous. Um, Sylvia was a, a project that someone, I just contacted me about a producer who I knew and said, what do you think? Do you think we could do Sylvia Plath? And everyone was terrified of doing Sylvia Plath because, yeah. you know, there's like, it's like, it's like Game of Thrones between the Ted Hughes camp mm. and the Sylvia Plath camp. And, um, but I'd been an investigative journalist for a long while and I was used to sort of having a Barney with people about things. I quite liked causing trouble. Um, so I said, yeah, let's do it. Um, and it was a lot of trouble. And it was interesting about that was an interesting project because the hardest thing about it was you had two of the greatest poets of the 20th yes, century right. and you had to invent dialogue for them. And, <laughs> and they had all, and all their friends are really kind of fantastic poets. And I, I had a lot of kind of performance anxiety about writing the dialogue for it because I mean, should it be? And then I remembered, I actually knew some poets when I was at Oxford. And the one thing I remembered about poets was that when they get together, they don't, no poets never talk about poetry. They talk about money. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like bankers talk about poetry and poets right. talk about money, right? Because <laughs> they each like, they each talk about the thing they wish they had and they don't have. Um, and that, that solved that problem neatly for me. <laughs> so. <laughs> Yeah, and and uh, Fleming, that was an interesting, you know, biography. I mean, it was it was it was about his life during the wartime. And yes, yeah. Maybe the degrees, the, the ways in which he be made himself a model for James Bond, although he was a, not a very good spy at all, and he was also quite an unpleasant person. And I mean, the more I read, I read an enormous amount about Ian Fleming. Right. The more I read about him, the less I liked him. Right. He was really quite an unpleasant person. And so uh, the hardest thing about that was just like um, el eliding all of the more unpleasant parts of his character to make him so that um, uh, Dominic could play him in a kind of sympathetic way. And then, but the miniaturist, I'll tell you about the miniaturist, Jesse Burton. That was a really interesting book to adapt because. You know, I I complain about novels, but when I took the miniatures apart, it was perfect. Right, it was so beautifully constructed. Um, there was it, it was a pleasure to adapt because it, I, you can tell when you do that kind of deconstruction of a book how much thought the author has put mm. into the structure of it and all the different bits of it. And it was like a it was like a Swiss watch the way the book was put together. Um, so I'm an enormous fan of Jessie. I think she's fantastic because she managed to do that very, very difficult thing of making something that was literary and sort of beautiful to read, but was also really expertly plotted, which mm. is unusual. You don't often get both of them together. No, it was. And it was, it was a beautiful program as well, by the way. Thank you. Um, so let's talk about your book. I mean, that's what we came here for, 17. Give us an idea of the premise of the novel, but just before you do, has anybody in your industry ever said to you, "Give us the elevator pitch"? Oh God, yes, all the time. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, no, that's uh, yeah. 
De rigueur. Uh, uh, yeah, no, completely. Um, the, the, a, direct, a very famous director once said to me when I was trying to pitch him something, he went, John, nobody ever heard a pitch that was too short. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of the truest things that's ever been said to me. So, uh, seventeen, seventeen is a hitman. He's called seventeen because he's the best hitman in the world. He's called seventeen because there were sixteen before him. He's the seventeenth in a lineage of the best hitman in the world, right. and it's basically a dog eat dog world where to become seventeen you have to kill sixteen, and to become eighteen you have to kill seventeen. Um, and it's the lineage goes all the way back to uh, the uh, the Romanovs to the hmm. to the beginning of the century. Um. In the, the premise of the book is that one through 15 are all dead, um, none from natural causes, you know, unless you can't be right. thrown out of a window or an aeroplane. <laughs> and, no, um, defenestration is definitely not natural. Uh, uh, and, um, and 16 disappeared at the top of his game for reasons that nobody can understand. And 17 sort of, you know, got, came in by default and has, so lived his last decade being 17 and sort of believing his own publicity and, but has never actually done the dirty work that he needed to do on right. 16. And, um, we meet him in sort of, you know, as a very flash Harry kind of character. And he's given the job of finding 16 and killing him. And mm -hmm. he knows damn well that 16 is the one man in the world who is perfectly capable of killing him. Um, but he know also knows that. If he doesn't do it, it will be a mark of cowardice and everyone will come after him to become 18. And so right. he has no choice about it. Um, and thereby hangs a tail, obviously. Um, it does indeed. I want to start. You mentioned construction there and the structure of a book and that. And I think there's, well, there's an incredible structure to your book, actually. But let's start with the opening, for instance. We're going to get into the action. We know that's coming very quickly. But the first two pages set the scene with these words. Spying is an ass-clenchingly, teeth-numbingly tedious. It's it's interesting because it instantly reminded me of that um, God Only Knows, you know, the Beach Boys song. Yes. And it says, I may not always love you. And you think, but this is a love song. What the hell's going on? And yours is a spy <laughs> book. And you've just done this. Um, but it's so intriguing. Can you explain what you were driving at there? Absolutely, yes. Um, I am really, I mean... I mean, God love them. Um, you know, p spy novels always are these days are predicated on them being gritty and real and, right. you know, just like it really is. And if you've ever had, I mean, I'm a, you know, a professional collector of spy stories. And the one thing I can tell you about real spies is that it's fucking boring. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's like it's cricket, dull gray right? men. It's like cricket. It's, you know, in long, long, long <laughs> moments of absolutely nothing happening interspersed by occasional moments of excitement. And, um, and I, you know, I felt like I've had enough of it. I, I yearn for the days of, um, James Bond mm. and, and that kind of spying being fun. Right. And a kind of joie de vivre about it. But <clears throat> of course, you can't do James Bond anymore because it's ridiculous. It's, and so what I really wanted to do was turn some of the pre, some of the cliches of the spy novel on their head. Mm. One being that it's all very, very gritty and real. 
um, you know, and it's Carla meeting someone, you know, in yes, the rain right. in Berlin with the, you know, the jazz saxophone playing. And at or, nighttime, of course. Yes, or it's James Bond where, you know, he, he uh he's essentially sort of the Captain Kirk of spying. Yeah. That, you know, uh, every woman falls in love with him and as soon as he looks at them, he never, you know, bow tie and never slips. Um and and the and the third cliche of the spy genre is that they're always special forces who, mm. you know, nine feet tall and six feet wide with a face that looks like a condom full of walnuts, you know, and <laughs> um and that they're, you know, relentlessly heterosexual and um never make a mistake and you know, and have no kind of emotional response to killing people. And so really it was to try and take every single one of those aspects and interrogate it somewhat you know um so that he you know 17 as a character sort of pretends to be james bond at the beginning you know you, he sort of sells mm. himself as this kind you know because he says spying's really boring unless you're me and then we meet him in a unless you're me going on at three you know 200 kilometers an hour down the autobahn but you rapidly find i hope that he's quite fallible you do and, and i he Sorry. takes the piss out of himself, right? He did, yes. Like, um, and he's amused by him, by I think where he's found himself, and then, and then, really, what what the point of the book for me was? Of course, it was about it's full of daring, do and action, and yes, so of course, so yeah. Forth. But it was also the process of him coming to the terms with the fact that killing people was not without cost to you personally, right? That's really interesting. I think I want to dig into that a little bit, but just one other thing sort of about the process in a sense, because you mentioned those key words there, unless you're me. And that's the point where two pages saying spying is dull, unless you're me, is the last words of the paragraph or the last words of that particular chapter. And of course, that's the cliffhanger because that sets it up then for everything that comes. Sort of like those old series, you know, where, I mean, it used to be that way, didn't it, that they'd end everything on a cliffhanger. Absolutely. Um, the only thing is then in those days, you could often get away with one bound and he was free. Whereas um, <laughs> you have to deliver, though, don't you? Yes. I mean, but that's exactly it. I, my model. I mean, you know, they, there's a saying that um, when George Lucas was making Star Wars, he modeled it on the Saturday morning, you know, yeah, serials, right. Slash Gordon and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I had and I have a producer friend, one of the producers of. Uh, I'm sure I'm allowed to say this. She's one of the producers of Killing Eve. And oh, right. she said um, that they were wondering how they could kind of top Killing Eve. Right. And they were basically trying to think of an idea where everything was a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, and so the one of the sort of amusing things about writing the novel was to continually write him into ridiculously yeah, impossible right. situations to get out of and then get him out and then sort of set yourself the challenge of getting him out of them, you know, which culminates, you know, in that sort of two thirds of the way into the book, into the most ridiculous situation you could possibly, I'm not going <laughs> to give it away. Right. But the, you know, trying to figure out how he got out of that was quite a trick. Yeah. I think that's fair enough. Cause what you're saying there is it's almost like it's the runaway plot in a sense, isn't it? Is where what's happening overtakes the characters to such a degree then they're scrambling to try and keep up and it's just getting worse and worse and everything you try to do to make it better actually goes and makes it worse again right yes they just the hole gets deeper and deeper and deeper. yeah yeah absolutely yeah there is something that goes with this as well though and that's a sense of tempo um you know you have quiet moments or you have to have quiet moments where you give the reader a little breather maybe and um chance for a thought i suppose um 
before you go on to that point where you suddenly hit these crescendos again? I mean, that's important in the way you write the book too, isn't it? I think it was music. Ah, I'm, right. I'm, yeah. your, your listeners can't tell, but I'm sitting in a recording studio right now. Yeah, we've got um, guitars and pianos and all sorts of Yeah, uh, so this is where this is my this is my writing space. But I, you know, I I think of writing in a very musical way and it's got kind of themes and melodies and counterpoints and surprises and you know, fortes and pianos and so on. And uh I'll tell you what re writing the book, I did realize that there was a reason why it had never been bought as a film and the right. process of writing the book actually helped me. Like I got through that. Um, and it was this, so you meet this guy, you know, who's a very kind of flashman kind of character. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, very sardonic and very full of himself. Um, and sort of talks to you directly as the reader. And we you know within a space of a few pages, he's killed quite a lot of people. And, yeah. um, it, for no, <laughs> No particularly good reason apart from the fact that he's getting paid for it. And I got about, I don't know, 50 or 60 pages into it, really to the point where he gets his job that we've been talking about. And I stopped and I thought, you know, I have a real problem here because I don't like him. Um, I don't right. know how I'm going to write the rest of the book about this character because honestly, he's a worthless piece of crap and he deserves to die. Um, and I stopped there and I thought, oh, God. Have I made a great mistake in trying to write this as a novel? Um, because I enjoyed it up to that point. And then I thought, I just, I'm just, just don't have any feeling for him. I don't, he, you know, and then I literally, the words came to me, which was my mother's name was Junebug. And, right. and the idea that we need to find out who he was as a kid and how on earth you end up as this kind of, you know, exotic wild animal that we've met. And, the moment I saw that, I felt I, I, the moment I got to, to those words, the rest of it just poured out, really, especially the stuff about yeah. his childhood. That was really easy to write. And uh, I f it suddenly I felt I had comfortable with who he was and where he was going. So I would never have found that out writing the screenplay, which is interesting because That's I just true. had to do it. Yeah, that really is interesting because I think, I mean, what he says about himself is that he thinks he's um, Lee Marvin in Point Blank. You know, <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. That that impossibly romantically hard character, um, and the reality we find out is that um, he's a lot more frail than he thinks he is. And once he starts yes, caring yes. about things and things happen, he wants to know. That's one thing that they don't like. He suddenly discovers this desire to know things, and that's dangerous in his line of work. But um, I suppose one of the things is what you've done is you've made this ordinary guy, and then the question is, well, why on earth would an ordinary guy want to kill somebody? And that backstory helps to put that frame in for us, doesn't it? Well, that's what I was saying about it. Usually in a spy novel, either the, someone has got a huge kind of intelligence background or they were recruited at Cambridge or they're right. special forces operative, you know, or they're, you know, were found floating in the water. Having so it's sort of natural that they follow on. Well, you know what? It's a big excuse for why mm, we're not yeah, having yeah, to explain right, why right. the person is who they are. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a hand wave, all of that stuff. Um, that excuses the writer from telling you why someone should be like that. You know, oh, he's a psychopath. Oh, he's special forces. You know. Yeah, I see what you mean. You can dismiss it. Mm. Yeah, and I was really interested in someone who wasn't like that. Um, and 
there are two aspects to that, really. One, you know, one is that it's just wish fulfillment because I partly it's just me going, well, <laughs> I mean, I'm the least likely person to become a hitman you've ever met. Um, <laughs> but I would say that, wouldn't I? Yeah, the, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but I did wonder, well, what would now, I do? remember now? Number 16 in the novel, uh, sorry, in the book, yeah, your novel, 17, yes. has written a novel. He has. And he's fictionalized his real life. Uh, That's true. Yes. So, uh, yes, uh, we'll come to that. Um, so partly it was about trying to write someone who you could, in, a, in, a, in some way, you might feel like you could be that person. Right. So, that, you know, that they, they don't have any particular abilities beyond what you might have if you were that mm. person. Um, uh, and the second part of it was, um, I have pitched a quite a few stories in the past for TV shows or whatever that feature ordinary people. Like why, for example, I pitched a show about a woman who, you know, works on the checkout at Asda or Lidl or right. somewhere like that, who's, you know, very kind of, you know, regular person, you know, middle-aged woman, 40 something woman. Right. Whose son disappears in, you know, Libya or Yemen or somewhere. And she can't get any, you know, any um, juice out of the, commonwealth office or the you know the consulate and so she decides to go and find him herself and in the doing so she has to learn you know all the tricks of the trade she has yeah, to become right. a spy i thought you know i as a journalist i've met people whose children have disappeared you know or just very kind of like regular women men mm. who, who become absolutely obsessed by it and would do absolutely anything within their power anyway you know and i so i wanted to tell that story when I pitched it, people went, oh, well, how would she do that? Can't she be a policewoman? Can't she be, like, from the army? You know, yeah. wanted to give her all of these kinds of, like, you know, um, plot armor or, you know, stuff that explained it. And whereas right. to me, the whole juice of the thing was in her yeah. having to do. Throwing somebody with person. no experience, no skills. Throw them into yeah, the Yeah, you know, you know as well as I do, that, you know, the, 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 just because someone's working on a checkout desk doesn't mean they aren't a brilliant person no, of course or they not. aren't capable of doing things so anyway so in the novel sorry i'm going on and on and on but no in the no novel, please you'll notice that i don't tell you very much about 17's appearance yes he, i you can read the novel and not know what race he is uh you know where he comes from really you know anything about him because i wanted you to be able to inhabit him mm. whoever you were okay that's a good point because the novel is written in the first person. Yes. Yeah. And exactly. so we are very much with him. We are, we are him in a sense in this book. Aren't yeah. We? I, I think that you, it's almost like you're kind of riding shotgun with him throughout the whole thing. Right. Like, you know, he's, you're, you're the sort of unseen observe, unseen companion throughout the whole thing. I know some people don't really like that, but it, for me, it was just the way I wanted to write it. Oh, no. And well, I think it worked anyway. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. There's this kind of role value reversal thing that's there um, in the sense that in order to be a good hitman, you have to have none of the things that actually make you a good human being. And it's really <laughs> interesting to see that interplay. And of course, he's, he's in one camp, we think, at the start, and he's in the later camp, you know, or later on in the novel. He's moving towards the other camp, which is about realizing he's a very human being. The other thing that comes out of that, of course, is a realization that, and you mentioned this a bit earlier, violence does have consequences. You know, this is not, that's another thing that you can sometimes get in spy novels or novels that are action, a whole load of violence that just 
it's just there for the sake of having violence there. And we're all supposed to, grat- you know, be gratified by that. Yeah, I was very, I mean, I was super determined that the violence should have consequences. But to go back to what you just said about <clears throat> to be the best, you know, the best right. hitman. In fact, it's a, it's a, it's a paradox because if you're just a psychopath, you're never going to be the best right. hitman. The best hitman is someone who does have those kinds of, some kind of emotional intelligence and mm. so on. And that means that if you're going to be a number 17 or an 18 or a 16, it's a poison chalice because by definition, you're the kind of person who's going to be affected by it. So, I mean, to go back to the, 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 I just want to talk for a moment about the world of it. One of the ideas I had was that we have it in Marvel and DC. We have these superhero universes. I was very interested in the idea that we could have a sort of spy hitman universe where you've got a 16 and a 17 and an 18. You know, I've just written 18. It's finished now. Um, 16 will probably be right. next. But I have a, you know, I have a list as long as your arms of one through 15. I know who most of them are and their stories. And, you know, so they're already there, really, right? Okay. Yeah. In my head, most of them are there. Um, and it was a way of kind of integrating a lot of spy stories that I knew just, you know, from 20 years of being a professional consumer of spy stories, a way of integrating them into a world. Into yeah. The universe. That's, that's a very interesting point because you do create this universe. We got this assassins world, you know, where we've got these the line, the linear, the dynasty of, of assassins, and then you bring real things back in, and obviously, I assume that comes from the years that you spent working in documentaries and so on. But it's a it's a brilliant way of also grounding it then back in the real world. Yeah, I mean, you have to ground it somewhat. I mean, I think you know, it is. Uh, I I'm never sort of too, I never worry too much about you know. Uh, uh, I, you know, it, it, it's meant to be fun. Yes. You know, there are, me- there are moments in it that frankly are somewhat unbelievable. Um, uh, but if you close your eyes, you can imagine them. And that's really why that's what the, the matters. But yeah, I think it's nice to have, um, some kinds of when you do a lot of research and things jump out at you, stories about, you know, for example, the letters of last resort in the nuclear submarine. Yes. Right. Fascinating story. I didn't know mm. that, you know, um, and there are things like that that it's really nice to be able to kind of throw in um, just as a sort of incidental pleasure in the story, um, nuggets of information and so on. Yeah, it, it is. And I think that's part of the fun for a reader as well, you know, to pick up on things like that and learn things sometimes that you didn't know beforehand. That goes hand in hand with something else, which is the film and cultural references in the book. You put some very explicitly, you mentioned titles of films, you mentioned specific things. But I think, for instance, there's a scene early on in the in the book, which reminded me a little bit of Pritzi's Honor. The point is that, that you've got these cultural references in there. And that, again, is fun for the reader. But I assume that was fun for you to write, too, that you like referencing certain, maybe paying a little homage to... Yeah, absolutely. And- yeah. And I mean, the, my favorite joke in it is about um, <laughs> just that you, that you should never kill another man. That he'd learned from movies that you should never kill another man's dog. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it, yeah, I think the, uh, the, the slight knowingness of it is um, right. Is part of it. I mean, you can take it, you know, to extremes. You see in a movie like Deadpool that it becomes sort of extravagantly knowing. Um mm. Uh, I, I was somewhat influenced by Fleabag, um, right. where you're party to someone's psychopathy, which is really nice. And I was interested in finding a, a sort of novelistic way to do that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
just thinking then, um, oh, something that struck me about this, one thing it does give you the chance to play with when you're talking about this character and how he could have been cold and you might not know. For instance, we don't know anything about 16. It's, there, it's not quite the same thing because with 16, we just know him through action. At 17, we know him through his own thoughts about himself. So it's slightly different. But there's an interesting thing about bringing it in cold so that you have to then build this picture of later on, you know, and now you've said you'll be writing about 16. We know there's more of that to come later. But it allows you to play with things like trust, for instance. I mean, the one thing in a novel is you don't trust the person who says, trust me. Right. That's for sure. You've kind of created a void with these characters into which we're going to fill our own ideas before we slowly get those changed by what actually goes on and what we find out about the characters. But it does allow you to play with themes like that, doesn't it? It does. And and also to, I mean, I think with 16, as the novel progresses, there, you know, you do discover why he quits. Right. And you discover some secrets about him and you discover that in some ways he is the end point of the journey that 17 is on. Um and and that these two men are the you know the only two people who on earth who can understand right. each other um you know like the heat scene essentially um uh so yeah that uh i mean i i i i love i like to kind of dig away with characters i don't really i love i love characters who sort of uh, surprise you or have some kind of depth to them that have a story that have a story about them that you feel like they have a life that's not just about this novel. You know yeah, what I mean? Right. They're not just there to serve the novel. That you know, you I, I watched um a show called The White Lotus. I don't know whether you I haven't seen saw it. Saw no. that. Um and it was a fascinating show because every single character in it you felt could have a, a, a series of their own. Right. And I feel you know, that's kind of what I feel like with the characters in 17. I sort of, you know. In fact, one of the ideas about the series was that the characters would recur, so that we'll meet Handler in 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 sixteen. I see. Yes, Cat uh, will turn up again in in eighteen. You know, so that we'll learn more and more about them, and they'll develop along you know their own lines. When it comes to the action in the novel, you started with that opening sequence. That was where the idea came from. But there are a lot of moving parts in the novel and a lot of subtle connections. I'm thinking about structure and how it all goes together. So something that happens early on might seem like a throwaway, but it's really not. It's something that's in your mind and it will come back. Right. And you get that sudden significance, but then you have to add character to that. I'm just wondering how, how much you plan this and how oh, this comes yeah. together. They, they, there are, there are, I know you've come across the phrases, but there are two kinds of, or two kinds of writers. I mean, people mm. are on the spectrum between the two kinds, but there are planners and pantsers mm. and the pantser is the one who starts on, you know, with the first sentence and then yeah, right. wonders where it's going to go next. And then there are the planners who plan it out millimetrically. And I, just cause I, you can't pant, you can't be a pantser in the world of screenwriting because there's too much writing on it. So you yeah, have to be right. a planner. <clears throat> uh, so I'm a massive, massive planner. Um, in fact, I, um, I have a whole method of planning that basically uh, postpones the actual writing of the words to the last possible minute. But right. so that I might, the things all written, I mean, it just changes you writing it, but I 
for example, I don't necessarily write in in sequence. I I will oh, I, see. I will I will pop around and if there's a big scene that I know is going to come later, I'll write that first. Right. And then I can like I can lay all the pipe that's necessary to connect it up to do that. So, so you can so, feed off it, yeah, as you go along rather yeah, than trying so, I mean, to get I, to you it. Know, I, years about 15 years ago we built we built a house and uh you know it was a very interesting experience i had a builder working and an architect and Mm. um talking to the builder it turned out that his job was the most similar to mine of anybody that i'd ever met (laughs) really Um, yeah it was really interesting we had long conversations about this because you know, when you build a house, you don't start by sort of putting a brick down and thinking, well, I wonder where the next brick goes. <laughs> you, know, you have. You know, yeah, no, absolutely. You, of course. You, know I mean? you, go, yeah, you, yeah. you sit there with the architect and you just, you know, decide what kind of you, a house is it going to be? You do not want to hire a, p- a pantser builder, no. No, right. So, you know, and then. They, so the architect draws up the plans and you go through another set of plans because that was too expensive. And then you give them to the builder and the builder goes, Oh, I don't think that's going to work. You know, <laughs> and then you look at the land where it is and you go, Oh God, no, no, the septic's got to be twice as big as that. And as you process, as you go through the, you know, as you go through the process of building, you know, you get the frame up and then you have to start, you know, you put, you, you have to start worrying about finishes and, yes, how, of you course, know, yeah. So, yeah. You know, every there's for me there was um, a kind of uh, an analog in every little bit of the building process. You know, even to the extent that you you know your first draft is just the structure, and then you start yeah, kind see. of filling in, and you might move a few rooms around and so on. And then by the time that you're kind of in the copy editing stage, you're really you know doing the grouting of the tiles and uh, and so on. And and also that you know once you start building a house, you know. Um, it's often it, it, it you. It's really hard to go back and like knock it all down and like dig yeah, the foundations right, again, right. right? You know, that's a different house. So you're sort of you. It's a weird thing. You there's a, you're committed to it, and um, but anyway, so planning, yeah. So it, my stuff is planned out, just mass with incredible detail. I mean, I basically know every. I don't know how many chapters there are in seventeen. There's I, I don't know 150 something like that maybe. Um, I knew what was in every one of those chapters. Yeah, close to 150. Yeah, what we got? Yeah. 154, 155. Yeah. So I, I mean, it, it, it wasn't actually written as those as chapters, but every essentially every pretty much every event was planned out. I did wonder about that. Now, does that go? Because you said you've written 18 and 16s yeah. in your mind. Did yeah. you go to the level of thinking about those things? Because 17 will appear in 16. I take it. No, 17. Ah, exist. okay. So 16, 16 is will be the origin story of sixteen. Ah, so okay, right, he, right. He okay, going right back to that. Okay, yeah. Um, I knew the story of sixteen because it was a story, another story that I'd wanted to tell. So I, ah. sixteen story has been in my head for a long while. Um, eighteen, I didn't know what I wanted to do with it at all. All I knew was about eighteen was that it picks up. It essentially it picks up a year. We pick him up exactly where okay. seventeen ends. Um. And 17 ends with a sort of promise, a sort of questions, sort of cliffhanger nice. about what might happen next. And I just felt, well, we'll have to deliver on that, right? That's, that's, that's what 18's got to be about. Yeah, um, that makes a lot of sense. Of course, the thing is, you can bop around where you like now. As you said, you've got the one to 15 in your mind there as well. So I know. Yeah. So I, 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 I keep thinking about the bookshelf, right? It's 16, 17, <laughs> 18. The, impl- the implication is that it's either 19 or 15 next. So we'll see. Okay. Well, we'll see about that one. What about humor in the story? 
is that sort of something natural for you? You know, I I once tried to write um, a comedy script and it was an project failure. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't funny at all. Um, And I have a lot of friends who are comedians or write comedy. And um, one of the things I've learned about you know, going out for a drink with comedians is keep your mouth shut because they're much funnier than you are. Um, there's nothing worse than sitting at a table of comedians and trying to crack a joke and then just everyone looks at you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just think, I mean, the, uh, I, I'm amused by things. You know, the character of Handler in the novel mm. is based on a real person who was a Hollywood agent who I met very early <laughs> in my career. And uh, when I talk to people in Hollywood and I tell, I go to, the, I say to them, you know, that's based on someone. And they go like, is it who? And I tell them and they all go, oh yeah, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a very amusing person. I mean, he right, was unintentionally right. amusing. I found him amusing. And, uh, you know, 16 has sort of some odd habits. You know, he's a, he's an old dude, right? He's a, you know, he is. he's a, he's a boomer who watches Fox news and, I, you know, there are, when you, you know, you know, if you know a few of those people, they just have weird kind of like, it's that inherent things sort of that it. they do. There's some kind of bizarreness to it, you know, like, yeah, what, what the they absurdity. Eat or, yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I did, you know, I did really, really want to have a scene of uh, a hitman vacuuming, which mm. is in the novel, right? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I, yeah. Just, I think if he, if also, it arises naturally out of the situation. Um, if you're a hitman in a rural environment, there are certain things that can happen that you don't anticipate as well. So yes, <laughs> well, you know what? Some of those have happened to me. I so the house. Oh, right. that we built, <laughs> so the house that we built was in the middle of nowhere. It was on the top of it. Right. Very. It was sort of basically like Sixteen's houses in the novel. It was on the top of a hill. Right. We had fifty acres, and you know a wood. And um, one. I used to fly. I used to. As I say, I'm a nerd, so I used to build my own drones, and I used to fly my own drones around the property. And then one day, one of them crashed in the forest, and it, I, it was stuck there. And I could see on the GPS roughly where it was, so I, I right. lifted it off into the forest. And my, I think my wife was out, the kid and kids were away, so I'm on my own. And I hoofed it off into the forest, and I forgot that it was going to get dark. So I'm looking for this drone in the forest, and I hear it beeping, but I can't see it. And it suddenly got dark and I realized I hadn't got any lights with me. And although I knew the forest pretty well, you don't, in the dark, you don't know a forest. Right. No, I'll bet. No. (laughs) And, uh, I've, so I ended up sort of like having to wade through, you know, hip deep through beaver ponds and stuff like that (laughs) to try and find a light so I could get home. But, you know, I've literally been, um, mountain biking along and then suddenly come on a you know a bear sitting on the trail and rapidly turned around and gone in the other direction as quickly as possible so a lot of the the part of the reason why it's, it's set in a rural environment was that i had moved to a rural environment right and it had inspired so you're having you some know, fun with that yeah you know that is rural you know the country's a different place so um yeah that's yeah of course from. well we can laugh about it now because you are here so that's that's proof <laughs> that it was okay in the end yeah, um, it was all right. Yeah. Slightly more serious, but back to this point you made about spy novels generally. It's just that there are a couple of really strong female characters in the novel, and you mentioned I think that Cat will be in the next one as well. Um, tell us a little bit about Cat and Barbs and the fact that that is the thing that spy novels got wrong, really, isn't it? You know, they were femme fatales or they were just couriers or something. I mean, they were really serious female characters in a spy novel. Again, I think that 
when you one of the reasons why I was so keen to sort of invert the stereotypes or at least right. the stereotypes was that having written a lot of thrillers for Hollywood and or rewritten thrillers for Hollywood or, mm-hmm. or you know you see those tropes over and over and over and over again and they're very frustrating I mean both Cat and Barb are essentially people who they're composites of people who I, who I know right um and you know uh I wanted them to feel like they were people that you might meet as opposed to people who you might meet in a book um right and uh, so with cat that was an interesting question because i did need to write her you know from a, at a certain point i have to write sort of in her shoes yes right and, and i i don't know how I, I, she, like i say i think she, it's mostly that she's based on some kind of quite tough people women who i have known mm. um and i just I, I suppose also you write people who you would admire so yeah, I don't have a very good answer for you on that. No, 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 no. Look, that makes a lot of sense. I think it's about empathy, really. At the end of the day, I mean, there is some talk about whether male writers should write female characters, but I think there's a golden rule for that. The only thing I'd say is, obviously, there are some subjects that would be better to steer clear of. But when it comes to writing characters, we all have empathy with other people and their experience. So, if you write female characters, the only point is you have to get it right. If you get it wrong, then you deserve to be pilloried. But on the whole, you've written some very strong women and they're fascinating characters in the book. So it's great to read. And I do think there has been that problem in spy fiction over the years where women haven't been taken seriously. And you could probably say it's that, especially of the action end. So it's nice to have that being redressed. And a lot of women writers are doing the same thing. In the in the next novel, there's a whole section about Nigeria and Boko Haram right. and, and so on and so forth. And that I had to do a lot of research on that mm. because it would be really easy to get all of that wrong. Um, yeah, so, I would, yeah. Yeah. You did say the idea was originally a screenplay. That didn't work. You got the time, and so you wrote this novel. But you actually have now sold it uh, as a film, haven't you? I have, yeah. In fact, it sold, yes, it, it sold instantly as a film. Um, Great. And um, I had a lot of conversations with, you know, I had a week, basically, of sitting on Zoom calls, <clears throat> excuse me, with people mostly in Hollywood, mm-hmm. um, talking who wanted to, you know, to make it. And in the end, I had the best conversation I had was with uh, Travis Knight. Yeah, who, right. Uh, is Phil Knight's son and runs this uh, animation studio, uh, Leica, who are best known for Coraline and Paranorman and these stop motion things. But um, Travis also directed the uh, the last Transformers movie, Bumblebee, Bumblebee which was unexpectedly right, right. excellent. It's a really good movie. And uh, he and Hyde just hit it off instantly. So um, uh, I've now, I'm this, my, I, I've, I'm just doing the second draft of the screenplay right now. So that's going to go off at the end of this week. And um, I, I, there are many a slip twixt cup and lip in yes, the movies. Yes, of course. But, uh, you know, it's, it's looking quite good at the moment. No, that's good news. I mean, at least there's traction with this in the sense that I talk to a lot of novelists, you know, who, who are book writers rather than screenwriters or know yeah. anything about the world. And when, the, when it's optioned, they're getting excited. And I can't tell you the number of people I've had who've had options who, and it, it's just not going to go anywhere. It, it won't, you know, for the vast majority, that's the end of the story. It just doesn't that's get true. through. That's yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. The, I mean, quite often 
not quite often. There are situations where a book gets optioned for no other reason than that they, the studio has a competing project which is similar and they just right, take it right. off the table. That mm-hmm. is something that happens. Um, and and also because options are fairly cheap generally mm. in terms of movie money, you know, they you it, it's often between sort of some. It's 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 between you know on the low end it might be two and a half thousand pounds five thousand yeah, right. pounds on the on the you know that's chump change for a lot of people in the business mm. and so then they try and set it you know they but then they need to co- convince the studio to pay for a script and 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 that's another you know another thing entirely. We've talked a lot about how the novel and the script is different, but for instance, now what you're doing here is this is a first person novel, so we're inside his head. And I could see a sort of scene at the start. You could have a voiceover to do those first two pages and end with the last three words as he walks into the building and chaos starts, you know, let loose. But how is is it going to be difficult to keep what is a story where we're very much with him in that frame of mind as a script? Does that make sense? Well, that was the, yeah, I mean, that was that in the script, that's been the kind of main problem to to address is how you retain because the, it turns out that what people engaged with it in terms of trying to make it into a movie was not that, I mean, the action and stuff like that is fine. They like mm. action, but it was what was distinctive about it was the tone of voice, I think. Yes, right. The attitude. And so, <clears throat> and some, and the backstory, the sort of emotionality of the backstory and his relationship. Yes, right. And blah, 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 blah. So it was about how you retain those elements within the structure of, you know, what's, going to be a big action movie mm. um and the, i mean i'm i'm I, i'm not going to tell you how we did it <laughs> um, i'll have to watch but, the movie yeah i think so um but i i mean just in terms of part of the process of how i write i mean it, maybe this makes a bit of sense if i tell you that i've always basically written the same way which is that i play a movie in my head and then describe right. it so, so that's you know one of the reasons why it's written in the first person. I mean, mostly in the first person. There are some yeah, I see. Is because when I write a movie, I'm I I stay with the protagonist. I just want to be with the protagonist. And so, uh, you know, my view is that it's really not about screenplays or books. Mm-hmm. It's about story and events and so on. Mm. So I that's I just kind of close my eyes and and imagine what happened. Um, and if it's a screenplay, that's a movie, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting on the screen and, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. I won't ask you for more. I know that, uh, <laughs> it just struck me that that was one of the things that must be the issue. With, yeah. With, I mean, I think it's pretty, it's pretty clear how, how it might work. Uh, mm, I think right. you can probably use your imagination. <laughs> and one last question then, sir, how about a recommendation? And I don't mind if that's a film or a TV series or a book that you've read recently that you'd uh, you'd advise people to have a look at if possible. I try not to read too much because it gets. I'm I'm a um, what's the word? I'm a sponge, right? A- and, and I don't want stuff. Up, I will end up recapitulating what I read, which is right. Good. Okay. Um, and also, frankly, if you spend. You know, like Friday, I spent 14 hours writing. The last thing I really want yeah, to do right. <laughs> is read a fucking book. Hence <laughs> um, the musical instruments and yeah, the exactly, photography. That's, exactly. and, like, that's gotcha. right. But um, in terms of um, TV, I would say that the the two shows 
uh, or two or three shows that I've watched that I absolutely wholeheartedly recommend are I don't the the leftovers is a fantastic show yeah right. um, which is uh, made by the same person who made another fantastic show which is uh, the watchmen watchmen which is amazing and then i also thought um severance was terrific right and what else are there? and oh and and the other show which not not a lot of people have watched is the white lotus which i thought was magnificent so, i'll look that up because i don't know that one i must admit yeah it's uh the, the amazing characters uh and of course the kind of the, the, the 800 pound gorilla in the room for me uh was better call Saul, which i thought uh, was yeah. an astounding show from beginning yeah. to end it was. I thought that was better done than uh, than the original Breaking Bad in the end. I think so. Much, it much was better. interesting. I, I read an interview about with the creators, where which is that basically they didn't know what it was going to be at the beginning at all. Yeah, you it know, must the, have been like pilot, that. Yeah. The pilot is, you know, like it's all about you know his relationship with Kim Wexler in mm. the end. She has two lines in the pilot. You know. <laughs> yeah, it's weird, isn't it? So yeah. Anyway, but no, I, I agree with you. That is a fantastic show. There's one on um, a German one called Cleo, which is unashamedly, it's a ripoff of Killing Eve. Oh, okay. But because it's got this German political context at the end of the Cold War, it's actually quite fun. Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, I'll so look it up. It, I thought the, uh, the French, there's a French show called Le Bureau. Yes, right. Which is also really, I was found. Yeah, that, that is and, and, very classy. And, and And kind of managed to sort of, uh, walk the tightrope between a kind of genre, genre spy thriller mm. and something that's more more advanced. literary. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. John, that's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you, John, for a real insight into script writing and your debut novel, Seventeen. 17 is available in hardback from Hodder and Stoughton now. You can order a copy through bookshop.org by clicking the link on the program page. If you've enjoyed this show, why not rate and subscribe on your favourite podcast provider? I'll be back shortly with another interview, but for now, bye, and thank you very much for listening.